got to be honest with yourself and 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 you know know what you're good at, know what, what you, where your weaknesses are, and you know think about where you want to develop and where you don't. Welcome to the Leaders of B2B podcast, a weekly show where we bring you interviews and in-the-weeds expertise with today's B2B experts and thought leaders. You can see more about today's episode and guest by visiting our website at leadersofb2b.com. This episode is brought to you by Content Allies. We help B2B companies launch revenue-generating podcasts. We schedule interviews between you and your ideal prospects and strategic partners. You show up for engaging conversations. We handle everything else. Ready to build a podcast that grows your business in just one hour per week? Reach out to us at contentallies.com. Hey, leaders, welcome back. This is Ledge. Today, I'm welcoming Pieter Cranaw to our uh, podcast. And Pieter, I'd love if you would give an uh, introduction of yourself and your work for the audience. Awesome, mate. Thanks for having me. Nice, nice to spend some time with you today. Yeah, uh, Peter Crino, I am CEO of ThruWave, companies based in Seattle, small startup uh, focusing on new sensing technology. So really exciting stuff, developing some uh, some new technology that you know, broadly applicable to uh, the supply chain industry. And that's obviously a big topic right now. I hear about supply chain here and there in uh, my Google News feeds. <laughs> Love to get your thoughts on on what's what's going on and how the technology fits there and Clearly, there's a hunger to improve some things in that space. Yeah, I mean, look, I'd love to tell you that I've got a magic solution for what's happening in the, on the supply chain side. You know, it's usually complex and complicated the way uh, global supply chains have been developing over many decades. And we're sort of seeing, you know, a multitude of things impacting many, many companies. Uh, so it'll certainly be interesting to see... Um, you know, how things progress. And, uh, you know, obviously there are a lot of companies that can, you know, from a supply point of view that can help. I think for me, you know, just a couple of, couple of maybe points, if you look at who's doing well or seemingly doing well, you know, the companies that are being, that are very vertically integrated. If you look at a Tesla, how they control their supply chain and their development and all the functions within their company, it seems like the control has, has, has given them an ability to uh, really manage you know, all the hiccups that we're seeing in the supply chain well. So I think there are a couple of lessons for sure to be learned there. Not necessarily in terms of being vertically integrated, but probably you know, what you control, what you don't control, and how you think about your global supply chain. I think so, some definite lessons there. Well, let's talk about through wave technology because i i uh i admit i'm a pretty big nerd but uh you know i looked at some of the terminology there and i was just like wow like this this is some cutting edge stuff so break it down for us so that you know we can talk more about it yeah i mean yeah again great to be talking about it i i, I think the best way best place to start is uh, as as everybody's returning back to travel uh you know when you go through the airport you're going to step through that sensing device where you put your hands up and they, they search you for any you know, items that you shouldn't have, that technology is millimeter wave. The solution that we provide is based on the same, same technology, millimeter wave. What makes us unique is we've been able to develop the sensing capability and the software so that we can apply it in high-speed applications. So when you walk through that scanner at the airport, you're going to be really slow for it to be accurate. 
we're able to do that at high speed. So really appropriate for things moving on conveyors or at high speed. So again, really good for uh, supply chain business uh, um, application. And so what we then do is uh, the same as that airport scanner scanning through your clothes to look for you know, objects, we can scan through cardboard or plastic or walls, uh, see what's inside, reconstruct a 3D image. And then once you have a 3D image, you can apply some nice, uh, w- whether you do that visually, manually, you can, or you can apply some uh, analytic to that to automate the assessment of that image. So easy for us to see things that shouldn't be in a box, easy to th- see how many things are in a box, how that box is filled. And based on the technology, we can also see interesting things like, you know, leaks or, uh, you know, because of the reflectivity of, 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 of liquid. So a really interesting application for the supply chain industry. And so this would be on the supply side, I guess, and on the manufacturer side and shipping. And so all, all along the line there, I suppose when you receive a package, you would like to know what's in it prior to opening it before you... Uh, ship something out, maybe a quality control type of of metric. There, what are what are some use cases in the field? Yeah, so we we see a tremendous number of use cases for the technology. I think where we're starting is really on the inbound side, whether that's retail or e-com, to be able to verify or validate quality. We see it on the outbound side for, you know, whether, again, whether that's retail or, or e-com or manufacturing, again, you know, to determine anomalies and accuracy in terms of packaging. Uh, so those are really two good areas for us. And then I think broadly ac- across uh, multiple verticals is, you know, things that cause leaks and various types of counting application. So think about, you know, bottling application, bottling plants. Uh, manufacturing and you know to 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 be able to once something is closed or packaged up to see inside to do that final determination are we sending the right stuff out did we miss something did did our automation miss something and again maybe just to circle back to the inbound side when you accept product into your warehouse you know that's today a very manual operation to go do some qc inspection you've got to open a box and so you'll do some sample sample tests, whereas with our technology, you can check, you know, 100% of your app, 100% of everything that comes in and make then a determination whether you want to open a package and inspect that further. So a couple of areas that we're focusing on that uh, should be driving a lot of value for our customers. I guess there's a lot of computer vision tie-ins and applications, right? You could have, the, in your example, would be the TSA agent sort of looks at the screen, but probably with some regularity there, you would know if you're accepting item X from manufacturer Y uh, on the loading dock that it ought to look the same every time. So anomaly would be box that doesn't register the same sort of visual and 3D footprint, I guess. Well, yeah, I mean, so so from a, from a traditional camera vision perspective, you can certainly identify damages to box, uh, you know, box mm. coming inbound. What makes us different is we can actually see inside the box. So you, right. can have, you can have a perfectly shaped box with no damage on the outside, but the equipment or the, or the item, the skew that's inside the box could be damaged. You know, you, th- those two technologies can work hand in hand where, you know, you could do a, 
a camera inspection that says, look, this box has got a dent in it, diverted. You can use our technology to see inside. And then once you confirm that something is wrong inside, you can, you can, you can take it to a QC station. So there, the technologies can work hand in hand. But the main difference between us and, and a camera system is the ability to see inside, you know, a plastic, plastic tote or a closed cardboard box. And so how does the, how do, um, you have to think about a technology solution like this. I imagine you have hardware layers and software layers to make a product like that work, which which has different sort of engineering and management challenges as you as you build a thing out like that. How do you keep those in parallel and working together? You know, we've been fairly fortunate that, you know, the team that we have on staff that developed the hardware uh, has come up with a really simplistic solution from a sensing point of view. So the sensing hardware that we have really doesn't have any mechanical components or major electrical components. So it's a really simple antenna-based solution that requires almost no maintenance. And so once you have that, then the magic really sits in the software. Once you get this, you know, Whatever you sense, once you get that, once you create that digital image of what you see, that's where the magic lies. So the ability to reconstruct images with software, and so really our solution is we see ourselves as a as a software company based on on what I've just explained. And then I think the 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 difficulty, or not the difficulty, but the 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 interesting part in our solution comes in what we actually do with the information. And how do we exchange data with the customer's control systems or the warehouse management system or the ERP? And that's really, I think, where most of the engineering goes into to make sure that those interfaces and data exchanges happen happen seamlessly and, and our customers can take the right decisions and they have access to the information. But as far as you know, our hardware and, and software is concerned, really robust, really stable, uh, really light easy to retrofit existing application. And it's really what you want to do with the data. That's where the software complexity comes in. Right. Yeah. It makes me think that, you know, you, when you're exposing new kinds of data that have never been available, you know, you're really talking about another dimension of business intelligence and maybe those uh, systems of record that you want to feed them into didn't, you know, sort of innovate ahead enough to know that that data might ever be available. So you have sort of a, an upstream challenge of saying, wait, we now know things that you should care about and you should trigger business uh, decisions and outcomes based on, but those systems didn't ever know, you know, when they were put in that, uh, that they would ultimately be able to do that. So you have a, I imagine a challenge working with, you know, other vendors then and having to say, hey, we can provide you things and build business intelligence out of stuff that you never knew could exist. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. You know, maybe it's it's uh, it's good to use a practical example. You know, when we scan, uh, take an e-commerce application where a customer provides a certain certain box profiles to package whatever you order online into, and they do some calculations based on their master data to determine, you know, how effective they are in what they put inside the box so that you don't 
fill a box 10%, have too large a box for the item or, you know, uh, so, so our, because we can see inside the box, we can now go and tell the customer, hey, this is how you actually perform it uh, versus how you think you're performing based on, you know, just the math that you do. So we provide our customers a way to make decisions based on the right data, the right information. And so there is a little bit of a, a, a cultural item there where the way that they're doing it in the past now would be shown up to be wrong or not entirely correct. And so there's a way that we need to work with our customers so that, you know, we don't want to make anybody look good. People try to do the right thing with the information they have and they want to report it in a way that they think is correct. So it's really to help them provide the right data and then for that company to make the right business decisions. Maybe they want to decide based on seasonality on different packaging profiles based on the information that we provide them. So so that's sort of in the in you know in the customer organization. And then as you mentioned from a supplier point of view, you know, we can work with vendors providing uh, automated packaging, for example, to provide them information prior to you know goods arriving at the packaging station, or we can provide closed loop at the back end to sh- to say, listen, you think You've, you've done this in a good way or at this level and, you know, we can confirm that level. We can show, no, you're slightly up or slightly down. So it's a good closed loop mechanism to work with, uh, with different vendors. So there's a, there's, a, there's a supplier vendor angle and then there's also a, you know, just working with the customers and making sure they understand what they have and uh, what they're actually making decisions on. Yeah, and you hit on a really important thing there that, you know, having come from many years of, of enterprise software, B2B types of, of selling, I know that one of the biggest hurdles to implementation of a, a new technology is the perception that oh, it's going to change things. And, you know, people don't like to change and change management and behaving differently, even if it's better, <laughs> you know, isn't isn't always how how people do that. And I think that's a great thing to dive into for, for our audience, because when you introduce what is, let's let's not say maybe disruptive technology, but new and innovative, and it, it changes the way business gets done. And that's one of the most difficult selling points. Inertia to do nothing is your biggest competitor. Yeah, I mean, that's, I think that's all right. You know, we all talk about labor shortage we all, I mean, the, the, the points that you make, and I, I think, you know, if we, if we talk about complexity, people res, resisting change, you really touch on cultural elements. And, you know, it, it, it starts with thinking about, at a leadership level, about what, do you, what can you simplify? What can you standardize? Because sort of complexity is drives job creation and complexity prevents simplification and then automation and then applying your labor to problems that really labor is good at solving. So there's no, I think, you know, one silver bullet to solve all of this, you know, when you think about new technology and when you think about enterprise software or enterprise selling you know, people are focused on what do I need to do this shift? What do I need to do today? What do I need to do this week to be successful? And for the large part, 
labor makes them successful. So it's such a, you know, a complicated issue that I think it starts with trying to address some of the cultural elements in organizations to make, to, you know, to, to say, look, we're going to simplify we're going to use standard reporting that's available in standard software. We're going to use the standard analytics, the standard reports, uh, standard ways of working so that you don't have to go and work on spreadsheets and complicated uh, analytics and reporting that is very manual. And then once I think you, you've got that philosophy, I think it becomes a lot easier to drive change. And then because it's applying that labor then to more difficult problems and automating what can be automated. So I thought... I think I think uh, it's uh, it's it is challenging. Yeah, and you make a great point that things are moving in favor of automation technologies that can now. Uh, you know, for a while it was like, well, technology is robots are going to take away our our jobs, and you know, a fifteen dollar an hour job at the warehouse was desirable, and we're seeing this strange flip in the workforce. Was like nobody can staff enough of these things where now it's it's actually going to be a selling proposition for for companies to say hey we can make better jobs because we don't have to pay somebody $15 an hour to slice slice open every sixth box and count bottles and i think that's a really compelling proposition that the labor market now would put in favor of, of technology automation, where just, you know, even five years ago, you would have had the opposite conversation. Look, I, th- I think, I think the, for me, you know, my personal view is that it, it's sort of what I call the power of and, A-N-D. You know, whatever automation you're looking at, whether, you know, regardless of what it is, whether it's robotics, pure software, uh, any other type of supply chain automation, the companies that can provide their customers solutions that address OPEX and CAPEX that solves, you know, automation for peak times and normal times, things that reduce quality but are simple and drive productivity. The more, the more things you can do in addition to a core value proposition is really what's going to set companies apart and, that'll, and that will allow the adoption of automation because it becomes more compelling. It's not one dimensional, it's multi-dimensional. And, and, and then you can again go to, you know, have that discussion about, you know, uh, let's bring in the robots because now you can go in, in, in a, and, and then apply that labor in, in a different area. And, and I'll take it back to an example. Uh, we've just spoken about, uh, you know, uh, bring it back to through wave. When you think about, you know, again, inbound uh, um, uh, um, product coming from a vendor. Normally, customers don't know when that is arriving, how it is arriving, how many is arriving. They just know they're going to have people to unload unload the dock. And then they've got a statistical model and they say they're going to check, do QC, you know, on the, on, on, on the high value items, maybe 5, 10, 15, 20% of the items will be inspected. Now, at peak times, what does that mean for our customers? They're going to add more people. But we've just said that people, labor is an issue. So if you can use uh, new sensing, te- sensing technology to scan inside the box, it means you can do the work without bringing more people in. So you can improve your quality because you can do 100% inspection and, you got to do, and you're going to do so at a lower cost because you don't have to employ more people. 
And then you can use the people that you have to maybe work on the analytics and see what's causing the damage and then go work with the vendors on a higher value equation where, you know, let's look at different packaging, shipping methodologies, or, you know, let, let, let's try and reduce uh, damage. And I think that is, that's going to resonate with, uh, with a lot of customers. Yeah, absolutely. The last thing I wanted to do before we dive a little bit into the, your path personally is, you know, you're, you're doing a thing that is, is new and challenging. And if you're not introducing a new sort of sector or, you know, just totally new category of solution, you're at least extending one. And doing that in a startup is one of the hardest things for any founder, CEO, executive team. We're kind of saying we're trying to carve out a new thing. And in many senses, people don't know that a new thing or category even exists. So you almost bear the expense of having to educate the public and the customer base. And that's really hard. Like it's it's a really difficult thing to do. And I just wonder if you have any tips or ideas about doing that, because we see founders hit that wall a lot. Yeah, I mean, it is a... If you're selling somebody, if you're selling something that people, if they know how to buy it, it's it's sort of easy. When it's when it's something new, there's a different level of education required. I think you're gonna have. I think you're gonna start with a level of understanding. I mean, if you, our customers are, as we speak now, ramping up for peak period, right? Christmas is coming. They're all focused on you know making making sure they can deliver to their customers a service level that, that, that they, you know, uh, where they want to be. And so to get access to that type of person now is very difficult. And that's not even, you know, wanting to have a discussion about something completely new. So I think, I think your timing needs to be correct. I think you need to be really focused on the value that you drive. And as I said in, in the previous sort of segment is you, you you got to drive value at multiple, you know, multi-dimensional value. You you can't just go and do one thing. So you got to have, uh, you got to understand where that value is, how you're going to capture it for the customer, how you're going to share it with them, and it's got to be coming from you know different sort of personas, right? Uh, making sure that everybody in that customer's organization understands the value to them, to their function, and how we're going to help them do a better job. And that is, unfortunately, just a lot of hard work, a lot of communication, agility, being able to take feedback from the market in real time and making sure your story is right, uh, it's appropriate, and uh, it hits the mark. Because whatever you're going to start off with likely is going to be wrong. you know, you, you, you can set up with, you know, really good intentions, but you're developing something new. And what we're learning is that every time we go talk to a customer, it's like, oh, this is really good. This is how I want to use it. Uh, or, you know, you've got, you guys have thought about it this way, but we see a bunch of value in this area of our enterprise. And those are things like, I mean, you, you miss sometimes. Uh, so I think just being agile and, and, uh, being really focused on what we hear from our customers is is important, but it's 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 picking the right customers that are innovative, that have a mindset to look at new technology and how it can improve their business. If you're going to go and talk to customers that are not structured the right way, not really 
inclined to uh, adopt new technology, you're going to be fighting an uphill battle. So picking the right customers, being agile, and 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 keep uh, you know messaging to multiple functions in the business uh, that's very appropriate for them, I think is important. Yeah, yeah. And how to talk about getting in front of the right customers challenging marketing problem there you know like how do you how do you find and locate people i mean i guess one of the answers is hire a good marketer uh but you know like how do you how do you get in front of the right people and i i'm interested to think about that from the you know ceo perspective well i think i think a couple of things you want to make sure that your message is out there uh, across a couple of platforms you wanna, you wanna, you wanna think about where you do your proof, your proof of concepts, and then you wanna think about, uh, you know, what what is the right avenue to get to those customers? Uh, you know, is it is it a very specific trade show? Is it using the network that you have within the company, whether it's your own, uh, using the investors that are invested in your company? They have networks. So I think it's a, it's probably a, a multifaceted uh, approach to that end user that you got to take. I, I don't think there's one way of doing it. You know, cold calling is difficult. Yeah, you got to. Yeah. And, and you know, and, and and for us, you know, you don't want to get stuck in the proof of concept world forever. But you know, funding some of your own proof of concepts and making sure that you've got skin in the game, I think is is important to some extent. And if you get out there and do those pilot projects or POCs, you know, capture data, get get the ability to make an outstanding case study that someone will sign off and say this thing really mattered for us. Yeah, and and, and and that's important, right? Is making sure again picking the right customer is that you know that they will actually do that for you. There are there are a lot of customers out there for various reasons. They won't really go and bat for you, right? They won't go and sign off on that case study. They won't go and maybe accept reference visits or take a call. Uh, so it's important to you know to make sure that those uh, customers there's some sort of agreement in place that they're going to help help you with that uh, communication. Yeah, because that's the currency you're getting paid with. Really, is like you know, hey, we're gonna do this thing at you know most favored nation pricing or whatever it is. And we need data and we need you to stick your logo on it you know, because this is important for us. And you, you're right that there are some large companies that will do that and some that won't. And I've seen people make the mistake of, yay, we have a case study. Oh, we can't tell anybody. Yeah. And, you know. and I think you can be thoughtful about it. I mean, I, you, you have to understand that a, a customer in one industry is not necessarily going to bring a competitor into their facility. But there are, you know, if you look at our technology, Regardless of the vertical, the end user, the use case, the, the software and the hardware is exactly the same. So you can go and deploy a proof of concept in one operation and showcase that to a different end user and a different vertical and get your point across. So there, there, there are ways of doing it. Absolutely. So you have a, a career path that I wanted to touch on because I think, you know, the myth of the startup founder is you're either an entrepreneur or you're not, or, you know, there aren't different paths into being CEO of a, a small, fast growing, innovative startup. And I see from your history that, you know, you, you spent quite a bit of time in, in what would be, you know, corporate large company and then evolved to that. And I would love to know that path because I think it's a path that more people could exploit 
you know, after a, a career in, in industry and uh, maybe underexploited. So I'd love to know the, the personal path of how you, you did that. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, I've been, I've been, I've been very fortunate to work for a great company that provided me, you know, a lot of opportunity. And, and, and so I think I, I, I have been very lucky. I will say that, you know, in the areas and the parts of the world that I worked, an entrepreneurial spirit was very much required. So the way I've always thought about my career is look at look at how you can develop personally versus how you can prog- uh, progress your career. And I think if you have that point of view, a lot more opportunity will open up. And so for me, I, had, I, I took a couple of sideways moves. I made moves that probably some people wouldn't have made, but those were all very personal decisions for me because those were things that I wanted to do as an individual. Um, and I think that allowed me to move and go and work in the Middle East, go work in China. You know, I've had multiple roles in the U.S. I worked in Africa. Prior to joining Honeywell, I worked in the UK. So I think that taught me a lot. And, you know, that personal development and working across multiple cultures with different teams, with different leaders, allowed me to, you know, develop probably things that otherwise I would not have developed. And being far from, call it the corporate headquarters, being so entrepreneurial, having to do multiple roles, I think really prepared me well to be a CEO of a, of a, of a startup. So it's it might be a little bit of a different path, but I think it's something that if you think that way or, you know, if you have those attributes, I think it's something that uh, works really well. And so it's like running a business unit in different contexts kind of makes you the CEO of a, a startup, but it, like as an, you know, kind of like to say intrapreneur, you know, inside of a, a larger company yeah look i mean if you if you if you're working far away from from headquarters in a diff, on a different continent in a different country you don't have necessarily all the functions and support that you would have close to home and so whether you're doing proposals or selling or engineering or project management or services you sort of have to do everything well that was at least my experience and if you think about being a founder or ceo of a small startup I mean, you don't have the luxury of all the functions or enough of the functions in place. And you have to do everything. And you got to get the balance correct, obviously. But um, so I think I think you're correct. And, you know, sort of what you've assessed that. Yeah, for sure. And what was the what was the actual path of, you know, how do you how do you go from that experience to, you know, is it like personal network or recruited or, you know, like actually how did you come into the network of being able to cool, there's a CEO job and I'm going to, I'm going to be, you know, on the ground level of an innovative startup. You know, again, I think it's, 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 it's uh, what I said in the beginning of, of the segment is for me, it, it's, it's, if you think about, if you think about career progression, then you're going to go from step one to step two to step three to step four. If you think about it from a, what do I want to develop as an individual, personally, what are some of the skills I want to learn? What are the, some of the things I want to do that I haven't done before? Then you open yourself up to more opportunity. And, uh, you know, for me, as I said, I, I had a wonderful career. But one of the things that I really wanted to do was apply everything that I've learned over a long career 
but in a startup environment. And so I was just step one, I was open to thinking about what I want to do, where I want to do it and how I want to do it. And, you know, uh, the through wave opportunity came around and I was, you know, I, I could jump on that and, you know, be, was able to join a really good team with great technology. So I think it's, it's just being, you know, if you close, if, if I just thought about career progression, I would have been very close to an idea or, you know, or that, uh, to that opportunity. I might not have ever seen it. So you got to be honest with yourself and, 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 you know, know what you're good at, know what, what you, where your weaknesses are and, you know, think about where you want to develop and where you don't. Absolutely. I love that. So before I let you go, I always ask the guests to, you know, kind of put on your futurist hat and and really tell us about things that you think are coming down the pike that are going to be important macro existential, you know, obviously we all in the last few years learned that, hey, a global pandemic is a thing, uh, you know, <laughs> anybody in 2019 who was doing their business plan probably didn't include that. Now they sure will. But I wonder, you know, what what things are on your radar? What should people pay attention to, broadly speaking, in, in B2B? Okay, obviously, politics aside, yeah, right. whether it's Russia, China, the US, there are things there that would impact businesses, you know, in a fairly dramatic way, depending which way it goes. So we'll, we'll, put, we'll put those aside. I think you know, or before we put those aside, I think you always got to think through the what ifs. I think that's really important. And we saw that, by the way, in 16, oh, when was that? Seven, 16, 17, 18, around about that time with tariffs and the impact that had on supply chain and the way you would think about building your supply chain. Suddenly, you know, steel tariffs come into place and you build conveyors or you build structures. That's a, that's a fairly uh, significant impact on your cost input or your input cost. So I think I think you always got to think through some scenarios around how the political environment will shape your strategy. Not a lot we can always do about that, but I think regardless of what happens, you've got to build in uh, some sort of resilience uh, into your teams and into your thinking so that regardless of what happens, you can react quickly. And the one the companies or the, the people that react fastest and and use the setbacks or those challenges as opportunity, those are normally the companies that will do really well. So let's put that aside. I think, I think the, the, the way companies think about their supply chains and what they value and how they construct their supply chains, I think will be really interesting to follow. You know, previously it was, let's get, let's outsource to the lowest country, the lowest uh, subcontract manufacturer or the lowest manufacturer and then, you know, have some sort of supply agreement in place and let's focus on other stuff. I think companies are going to take a lot more interest and, and think about how they structure their supply chains, where, what they value, how they value that, locations, resiliency, redundancy. I think those, those things are going to be very important going forward. So not necessarily lowest cost of the supply chain, but probably more security of supply, thinking about risk, disruption, pandemics, uh, you know, whatever macroeconomic economic factor. They, I, I think companies are going to look at that differently. I think uh, software and how we use software in sharing information across the supply chain is going to be very important. 
Uh, if you think about your supply chain differently, partnering differently, you're going to share information in a different way so that we can make better decisions. Otherwise, we sit with this toilet paper issue where suddenly it dries up and there's, there's nothing available. And nobody saw it coming or nobody can do anything about it. So I think using you being more integrated from a software point of view, using software, you know, being, being at the forefront of digital transformation, AI, machine learning, I think those, are going to con- those things are going to continue. Those will continue to be big, big topics for us. And then I think the way, the way we think about automation, the way we think about labor, uh, how we apply labor, what we automate, I think is going to be it's going to be really interesting, um, and we're seeing companies setting themselves apart at the moment. Uh, so, companies that are going to you know take control of their supply chain, whether they insource or be vertically integrated, companies that will deploy standard software, automate, use the intelligence, apply machine learning in a constructive way. I think those are the companies that are going to set them apart, and the and, and the solution providers and the vendors that are going to support those initiatives. I think are going to do do really well. Fantastic insights. Thank you so much for sharing. Peter, how would people get in touch with you and through Wave if uh, they want to do that? Throughwave.com, a great place to go get some information, uh, email or phone call, contact details are on the, uh, on the website. Uh, always welcome. We're very happy to engage, uh, you know, explain how we can help your you know, your business, how that, you know, how, how millimeter wave uh, imaging can uh, help you through cost issues, productivity issues, quality issues, and do hopefully multiple things for, for the enterprise and using new technology in a way that's never been done before. So happy to engage and uh, great session today. And thanks for having us. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Leaders of B2B podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a five-star rating. And as always, you can see more information about this episode and all the resources mentioned at leadersofb2b.com.